The Shame by McKenna Goodman. One. Imagine you're in the middle of the state of Vermont on a tiny island the size of a shoebox. Around you is a lake of boiling lava, so hot that it burns up anything it touches. In one hand, you have an endlessly replenishing supply of undercooked egg whites and a straw. This will keep you alive for a long and unhappy life. At the edge of the lava, miles and miles away, the heat ends and there is a lush and beautiful forest, meadows with wildflowers, bubbling brooks with salmon and little icicles and wild mint. There you can eat whatever you want. There you can eat pasta with clams, pasta with cheese, pasta with toppings, unlike anything you could imagine. And there are salads with every possible ingredient and really good dressing, all of which will be available for the rest of your long and happy life. But to get to this magical place, you have to cross the hot lava, and you can't have a flying machine. Would you do it? How would you do it? Here's how I would do it. I'd take my gun, because you didn't say I couldn't have one. I'd take my gun, and I would look up in the sky, and I would see a giant flock of migrating geese. I'd put my egg whites down on the shoebox island and aim my gun and shoot a goose, which would fall down into the lava beside me. Because of the size of the goose, only the bottom half would burn instantly, and I'd have two seconds to use the top half as a stepping stone. By this time, I would have already shot down a second goose. As one foot lifted off the first bird, the other foot would be landing on the second, and by then, I'd have shot down a third. I'd be in a spree of shooting geese one by one, rapid fire, and dead geese would be raining down on me, dropping into the lava in a line, and I'd be hopping from one to the next while shooting down more, and this would go on for hours and hours, until finally I would have shot down the very last goose, which would take me to the edge of the hot lava, and I would jump safely onto the shore of the bountiful, bountiful pasta and salad forest and live happily ever after. There are few moments in our lives when we are truly nowhere. I had experienced this feeling only a few times. Once, on top of a mountain that I had scaled just after dawn. Again, at an indexing conference. The hotel I stayed at was filled with all shades of corporate people convening, and I spent what turned out to be a great night watching pay-per-view and ordering lasagna to my room. And now, as I drove through darkness on the interstate. I messed with the dial until I got to public radio jazz, which, aside from my thoughts, was my only company. As I drove, I began to notice a sensation in my body that was unmistakably good, even euphoric. I was free. Behind me in the back seat were two empty car seats. No one was asking me for a snack. No one's nose needed to be wiped. No one demanded the same song be played at top volume over and over. I turned my music up and drank some water. I never went anywhere without my water bottle, and there was always a full one in my car. I never got my hair cut either. The hairstylist always does shit you don't ask for, and you leave looking like a senator's wife. 
I do the two hack snip after the shower and I always look fine. I put my water bottle down onto cough drop wrappers in the cup holder and saw a half-sucked one stuck to the console. Next to it was a crust of stale bread and some broken baby sunglasses, like bird skeletons. My engine light was on. What was I doing? This was too extreme. At the next exit, I told myself I would turn back. I would get home while the kids were still asleep. Asa would be amazed I had gone as far as I did. Maybe that distance was enough. But the portion of interstate I was on had very few exits and I was low on gas. I kept driving until I reached the next rest area and pulled in to fill up the tank. It was cold. Mine was the only car at the pumps. I went in to use the bathroom and met no one. By the time I got back to my car, I had made my decision. How did I get here? Who registered my car? Who scrambled my eggs, took me to the dentist, made corn on the cob, refrigerated the butter? I dive into the pond but emerge the same person. I push around the shopping cart and another woman's hands grab the granola. I am Asa's wife. I want to go to a party, he doesn't, so I stay home. I want to go to a town meeting, he doesn't. I go, but then come up with an excuse to leave early and drive home fast on icy roads. He turns over in bed, snoring the second the light goes out. I lie there, staring at the dark air above my head. He went on a fishing trip with Finn and came back, was all over me. Oh, how he missed me. I wanted to stay up and watch Netflix and eat popcorn in bed. Maybe if I lived in Paris. Maybe if I were 52, had a miniature poodle, were a famous painter with a yellow sports car and a rubber plant in a giant pot and a coffee table covered with elaborate silver teaware. Not in this life, Asa says. You married the wrong person. Oh, but what the fuck does he know with his elbow patches? I can reupholster the couch. I can adopt a puppy. I can wear whatever I want, do whatever I want to do with whomever I want to do it with. Maybe... If I wrote a successful novel, I could go to Paris to celebrate, dance on tables, and smoke a pipe. Maybe if I hadn't skipped history class in high school to smoke cigarettes in the alley, I would have a doctorate in international relations and would live in Paris for my job. Maybe if I had stuck with my singing in middle school, I'd be in a conservatory and would go to Paris each month to perform. I would stay in a rented flat. I would know the landlord. I would buy groceries and carry them in a woven bag. I was stalked by an ex-boyfriend in college. He would show up at my window at four in the morning and throw pebbles, demanding that I see him. I told him calmly and then more forcefully to go away. And a week later, a shoebox arrived on my front doorstep. Inside was a dead squirrel. This seemed like the last straw, like I would be the next to go. Wasn't that the message he was trying to send? I took the shoebox to the college counselor to file a complaint, along with my best friend, who was also my housemate. The administration building was low, made of cement like a storage unit. The counselor asked me if perhaps this was his attempt at romance. Maybe it was misguided, she conceded. Fine. 
She recalled her childhood in Kansas, where boys used to climb up a tree and knock on her bedroom window, where kids would beat each other with sticks on the playground and then go home for cookies and milk. I told her another story about a time when the same guy came into my living room with a gun, pointing it at his head than mine, alternating. My friend shifted in her chair. The story wasn't true. The counselor paused, and then, tucking a tissue she was holding into her shirt sleeve, told me that they would park a public safety vehicle outside my house for two days. In the meantime, I should think seriously about taking a leave of absence. Go home as soon as possible, she said. Pack my bags today. Wait until the guy graduated, then come back and finish up my classes. Take my finals, write my thesis. This was the plan she had for me. And she started closing her folder as if to say, time's up. I walked out of there and decided to just leave it all up to fate. Life went on as usual, the 4 a.m. visit subsided, and he shacked up with a field hockey player. Latest news is he's representing women in domestic abuse cases. I guess I got lucky. But the way she tucked that wet tissue into her sleeve really stuck with me. I kept wondering if it was just a thing people did, old people, to save paper. Or maybe she didn't have pockets. A few years later, I was living in Madrid, interning at a film company for the summer, and renting a room in a colorfully painted apartment in Chica with other foreigners. The landlord came up to talk once a week, shirtless, jiggling, and we'd share slices of the peaches I bought compulsively at the fruit stand downstairs. I slept in the pink room. It had a high ceiling. I could hear the discotecas bumping, but I went to bed early. That year was the hottest summer on record, and you could walk only on the shady side of the street. No one went outside from noon to two. I slept with the fan on high five inches from my face, and one morning I woke up and couldn't move my neck. My employer recommended a massage parlor down the street from our office. And the next day, after doing a piss-poor job of translating the film company's website copy, I went in for an appointment. The massage therapist was a man with long hair. There was Muzak and lavender. After the back massage, I flipped over and he ventured down to my groin. He inserted his fingers in me, pressed them against my pubic bone from the inside, explained to me in broken English something about pressure points. He proceeded cautiously, waiting to see if I approved. I told him I was getting a migraine and went back to the office where... I said nothing. We had bocadillos for lunch, gazpacho. I spent the rest of the summer in solitude, walking instead of taking the metro because there had been a bombing. I sometimes visited the vintage store across the street from my apartment. The manager was fun-loving, and we would talk about bullshit. I read English gossip magazines. I was lonely. I didn't want to get blown up. It was so hot, and I had the ache in my neck that wouldn't go away. Why didn't I tell anyone? Oh, please. It wasn't just the bombing. Ever since I was little, I'd been terrified by the idea of untimely death. Having children only made it worse. Waves of fear will wash over me while I'm scrubbing the dishes or driving my children around for a nap, or when they have fevers and I'm next to them in bed with a cool cloth, counting their inhalations. I imagine my kids bent over, 
shoulders shaking while they weep, calling for their mother, Mama, and their father, unable to find the right words to soothe them. I imagine them cold and alone in their beds, crying out in the night for me, and me not being able to wrap them in my arms, to tell them it will be okay, to comfort them. I will be dead forever. I have written put together a will on my to-do list every week, but I never actually do it. I worry that once I have my affairs in order, I will drop dead then and there. The thing that frightens me most, maybe, is the idea that Asa, or if he dies first, my kids, won't know what to do with my body. I imagine what they will say. Bury her in the local cemetery so that we have somewhere to visit. But when I think of the work involved, the beating back of the weeds with pesticides so the grass looks like a golf course, the interminable mowing, and then the space the dead take up when there are living people who need room for shelter, and the chemicals pumped into hollowed-out bodies that lie like, hum like mummies in tombs. The deterioration, slowly fleshing off to bone, while the toxic death makeup leaches into the groundwater, and the skeletons that are there for all eternity, gaping, with their clothes still on, their braids still growing. Cremate her, they might suggest, and that option is also not good. How would they know the ashes were mine? Compost her, Ace's more radical peers could say. Inoculate her with spores. But wearing a mushroom suit in a hole in the ground? Perhaps I'm too vain. As I drove, I imagined the scene of my memorial. And what began as terror morphed into a state of enjoyment and relaxation, so that I began tapping my hands on the steering wheel to the future rhythm of beating drums and kids playing tambourines. My shoulders dropped a little. I let myself release into it. I turned up the music, letting it swell with my reverie as I drove. Here's how it will go. Asa will invite my community to a weekend camping trip in the mountains. Everyone will drive there, having time to think in the car, passing small towns and meadows full of wildflowers, listening to songs from the past on the radio. They will arrive at a suitable site near a stream and set up camp, and they will bring me over to the creek and wash my body with cold water. They will try not to slip, but they'll inevitably get wet. Then they'll dab my skin with rose water and organic oils and place a bundle of lavender in my hands, tied with simple twine. They will wrap me naked in a white linen sheet and carry me back to the campsite on a cliff with a view of mountains. There will be a pile of wood prepared for a bonfire. They will place me on top of the pile I guess using a ladder, and the music will begin. Everyone who wants to will play an instrument in a circle surrounding me, and there will be singing. My friends are talented. This will be a memorable display of their artistry. There will be maracas, shakers, fiddles, whatever they feel like playing. There will be children dancing, maybe my children, maybe my grandchildren. There will be songs I loved, old folk songs, old blues songs. The fire will be lit. Asa, or if he's dead too, whoever is in charge, will make sure it burns bright, even if it means adding some sort of gas. Me being partially burned is not an option. And then 
As the flames rage, the music will die down and there will be a picnic where people can share memories or stories as they please. There will be good wine and beer, a potluck, someone will remember to bring the chips and the store-bought onion dip I always hovered around apologetically at children's birthday parties. People will have the option of weeping into their salad, but grief won't be a requirement. The idea is celebrate. Then, after I'm all up in smoke, the campers will pack their things and leave me there, hovering like a low cloud cover as they depart to a bed and breakfast or a distant campsite with clean air. If the memorial starts in the morning, I want them gone by dusk. No sleeping out there in the dark. I'll be dead, but they'll be alive. I found myself looking forward to this moment, some small part of me, even though I fear death utterly. Just knowing I can control it through planning the details calms me. I want my kids for years to come to remember the celebration, the burning, the feast, the music, the washing of my body in the cold water. I want them to be able to go back to the site year after year if they feel like it, to collide with nature, not a fixed and frigid tombstone, and to come to terms with the fact that I am dead, that they will lose others, that they too will die, and so will their kids. If their response is to resent me, then so be it. But eventually they'll thank me. If the day of my death is soon, there's a letter that I want someone, maybe Asa, to give to my kids. I have left this in a file marked important. And it goes like this. You two. I'm writing you this letter in the event of my untimely death. I want you, when faced with sorrow and the inevitable yearning to hear my voice, to be able to read my words, meant for you and only you. Can you remember my voice? I want you to know how hard it was to leave this world, to know, whether on a conscious level or not, that I would never get to hold you again, smell your breath, cut your eggs up, pour you milky tea, caress your softness. My great fear, which has kept me up nights for years, is that you will have to live without a mother when you need one the most. And now, perhaps, that fear has been realized. But your lives have to go on. There are still peanut butter sandwiches to eat, even if I'm not making them. They're just sandwiches. You can still feed the crust to the dog. Someone will fill your water bottles, brush your teeth with you. There will be someone to make sure you are taken care of. But what will you do when the grief becomes impossible to bear? Your father, he knew me best. He took the broom and dustpan to my corners. Just ask him anything about me. He'll tell you the story of the day we spent at North Beach, shrieking in the water, chasing your kickboards, eating twist soft serve at a picnic table, watching the bodies of Canadian tourists. He'll tell you he couldn't even look at them, how no one could compare. He'll give you a grandfatherly wink. He'll tell you how he biked as the mountains cut out of the water, how Finn went five miles without stopping at age four, no training wheels. Or he'll tell you about the drive to the birthing center. Me on hands and knees in the back of the Subaru with one seat folded down and the rain falling in sheets as he drove 75 miles an hour on winding country lanes. 
how the pimply nighttime guard at the emergency room entrance couldn't find the right key, how I held my hands together until he did, how we somehow made it around the corner to the hospital bed. He'll tell you how we ordered breakfast sandwiches and seltzer from the birthing center cafe and watched professional soccer on the world's smallest television while I waddled to and from the bathroom peeing blood, calling for more ice diapers, cuddling Eden in my arms like a seal pup. I worked hard to love you, to make you feel loved, to have the world love you. I became old instantly. I became imprisoned by love, by impatience, by impetuousness. It wasn't easy. I hope you will find the shadows comforting in the end. I wish I could be there to defend myself. Love, your mother. I change it about once a week. Just over a year ago, Asa was offered tenure and there was a dinner in his honor. The president of the college and his wife had reserved the entirety of a restaurant 20 minutes from our house, run by a couple who had recently moved to Vermont from Boston and had teamed up with a renowned chef. The chairs of other departments were invited, as well as some deans and upper administrative staff. At the time, I peppered my husband with questions. Who were their wives? What did they do? How many children did they have? Did they send their kids to private school? Had he seen the women before? Were they intelligent? I hadn't worked officially since the summer before Finn was born. About two years before that, I had written a short novel about an eccentric French stepmother, but it never found a publisher. My mother had always wanted me to be a successful writer, as she herself wanted to be, and I tried to publish it, I think, as an obligatory gesture to her memory, or at least I told this to myself. But no one liked it, and no one offered me a deal, and so I shifted my focus to getting pregnant, having babies, and performing relatively insignificant and infrequent freelance indexing jobs, which I wasn't that good at, truth be told. A useful skill left over from my college days when I badly needed cash. These indexes, mostly for medical textbooks, offered no creative satisfaction. I didn't even really like seeing words pile up or their corresponding numbers. I hated doing my taxes. I would get lost in thought and have to redo my work often. But the indexes brought in a modicum of money, and that was enough. On the door to my studio was a bumper sticker that read, If you don't talk to your kids about indexing, who will? I began painting on the side, something I had watched my father doing while I was growing up. And I used it as a meditation, since I never really had much time to make sincere work, with all the other chores required on the homestead. I did a series of my grandmother's teacups that I hung on the wall of the kitchen, and a portrait of the painter Vanessa Bell, lying face up in water, which I hung in the mudroom. They were a little bit Bloomsbury group, a little bit paint by number. I was okay with that. It was affirming to have created something material I could walk by and actually look at or take down, dust off, hold in my hands. When I was on deadline, I worked while the kids were at school. Otherwise, I cleaned the house, even though it was never clean enough. On the weekends, I took both kids for walks in the double stroller up the steep dirt road, turning around at the top and bracing backward, my weight the only thing keeping them from barreling down the road and off into a drainage ditch. 
The money I made on the rare index didn't add much to our family's bottom line, but it allowed me to feel that I was contributing in the most minor sense. The household items I purchased online, for example, felt paid for by the sweat of my brow. And somehow this made my increasingly conventional marriage feel more balanced. Although I tidied, our home was always messy, but as a whole, it retained an energy that was aesthetically intoxicating. Besides cleaning, cooking, rearranging the art and furniture, and doing the laundry, I trolled eBay on our spotty wireless for bargains to make everything beautiful. Vintage velvet pillowcases for the couch, a universal slipcover for a shabby antique wingback chair we had inherited from a neighbor, which took me nearly half a day to find online and probably wasn't worth it in the end as it was too loose in places and impossible to iron. Discounted duvet covers for our bed and a yellow spatula that could actually reach round the blade at the bottom of the blender. We were also lucky enough to be the recipients of quality hand-me-downs and the objects around me comforted me. They had a legacy. I considered myself frugal for researching pre-owned items carefully and finding the cheapest deal for the best quality, though ideologically all the online purchasing made me wonder if I was a chief contributor to the overconsumptive economy we had traveled so far to escape in the first place. But as rural people living on the edges of a Vermont village that didn't even have a gas station, would we do better to get in the car and drive 45 minutes to a drugstore chain only to risk not finding the thing we were looking for? Sure, there was a local feed store for things like chicken grain and what we called government cheese, a $13 shrink-wrapped hunk of sharp cheddar, but that was about it. Asa and I accepted the paradoxes of small-town life in the modern world while still considering ourselves renegades and anti-capitalist to the core. My attempts at frugality didn't prevent the occasional argument with Asa, who, despite his salary as a college professor, not that big considering, wore old socks and t-shirts he would discover after digging through duffel bags in the attic, handed down to him nearly a decade earlier by his older brother, I braced myself for his commentary on purchases he deemed superfluous, or worse, frivolous. Blueberries in winter, almond instead of peanut butter, a bigger terracotta pot for the aloe plant. Fine, I had a bit of a fetish for brightly colored water bottles, kids' Tupperware, and hand-woven African baskets, but otherwise I was pretty conservative with my spending. I knew I should resist the impulse to buy these excessive containers destined to take up valuable space in our lives, but it still got old, always having to explain the receipt item by item after returning home from the grocery store. This is what really bothered me when I was honest with myself. I was a failure in the world of art. I was afraid I had become the very thing I feared, my mother, who had struggled to make it as a writer and ultimately didn't, and who died imagining two little men were always following her, living in her eaves, stealing things from her, leaving the seat up, hiding cheese rinds under the daybed, making creases in the sheets and hoarding newspapers. She tried her whole life, hired a nanny to raise me, even got a few minor book deals, but then in the end still had nothing in her bank account except the dwindling reserves of investments she had made from selling my father's paintings after he died. I was also worried about being left. 
I imagined the day would finally arrive when Asa would sit me down to explain why he had fallen out of love with me and how he was moving into a yurt with his new, younger girl friend who would take the kids to live with them. And she would wear see-through nightgowns all the time, and it wasn't my fault, blah, 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 blah. I woke up in night sweats each time I had this dream, in different variations, over and over again. Him leaving me, my devastation, raging, then breaking down. Sometimes in the dreams, I would receive emails from people, telling me that my marriage was a waste. I would shake Asa awake, asking him to promise never to cheat, begging him to admit that he was... He would roll over and tell me to stop wasting my energy on obsessive fantasy. But I needed his affirmation. Without it, I was sure I would disappear. Yes, I felt invisible. I didn't have anything to show for myself except my kids. And the older they got, the more themselves they became, while I grew more and more servile, adhering always to their changing needs. As a result... I was anxious about dinner with the president of the college. I was worried I would have nothing to say. For three weeks before the dinner, I did my best to bring my intellect back to life and furiously researched the news from the last several months. If I didn't have something personal to discuss over dinner, for who would want to hear about all the things I really did, a good Yankee didn't divulge such private and insignificant matters, I would be able to discuss current events if it killed me trying. I imagined revealing my daily rituals. I imagined all the other wives raising their eyebrows and asking why I didn't just get a babysitter. What was I going to say? That I was totally attached to my children and didn't trust anyone to care for them better than I could? Perhaps pathologically so? That I didn't want to become my mother who claimed to have breastfed me but ultimately did little else to contribute to my rearing? That I wasn't even in touch with my nanny who actually raised me while someone else raised her daughter, though surely her comforting voice could have gotten me through a time or two. That I wanted my children to have a mother who was at least there, making snacks, carting them to the science museum and the pizza place, who had chosen chosen them over her own ego, her own ambition, who rubbed their backs when they asked instead of forcing them to put themselves to bed. That cleaning my own house was a question of honor and also of occupying an otherwise idle mind? No. Better to be able to talk about the wider world, to show that I could cook, clean, care for my children, support my husband's career, and contribute to the intellectualizing he was being celebrated for. I would look good doing it, too. I thought about this last part a great deal. In those weeks leading up to the dinner, I lay awake each night next to my kids as they fell asleep and went over my outfit in my mind, perfecting it. Brown velvet slim leg pants, a hand-woven linen shirt, earrings that were rose petals cast in silver, and gray socks under ankle boots. I finished reading the novel that had been gathering dust on my bedside table. I scrolled through magazine back issues that had been piling up on the shelf in the bathroom. I listened carefully to public radio while driving to and from the co-op so as not to miss the news. It surprised me that I got any joy from what felt like studying for my college finals, especially since I was still trying to please the same type of higher-ups. But I liked the preparation. I felt purposeful. I pushed myself. Hopefully, Asa hadn't mentioned my secret and shameful artistic aspirations to his colleagues, 
I was grateful that he was a man of few words when it came to the personal. Although, in arguments, that was the first thing I raged about. If anyone brought it up, I would deny that I had ever been a writer. And anyway, I was sure that I had never really been one to begin with. Instead, I would say, impressively, I've taken up painting. The night arrived. We showered. We dressed. I fastened my earrings, applied some tinted lip balm, took a last look in the mirror, and kissed the kids goodbye. They were already in their pajamas and climbing all over the babysitter, the daughter of a neighbor whom I didn't trust. This was the first time in over a year that Asa and I had been out together, and I hoped it would be worth it. We sat in silence to begin with, and it occurred to me that he was nervous too. At a certain point, I had Asa quiz me on the names of his colleagues as we drove on dirt roads through the hills. There were name tags at the table. I was seated directly to the right of the president of the college. Now I knew I had been rehearsing for a real reason, likely cosmic. And thanks to my research, I could impress. I could use what I had learned. I could even flirt a little, as I noticed that the president was quite attractive, despite his age. I knew that if I bungled this, Asa would look like a man who had married beneath him. And even though it wouldn't affect his tenure, it would absolutely cement in the president's mind an opinion of me for the rest of Asa's career at the college, which we hoped was for a long time, if not forever. Ivy League wasn't easy to find in the backwoods. Once you got it, you made sure to keep it. The other wives were put together in just the right way, and in particular, the wife of the Dean of English. She was tan from a recent trip to some island she and her husband visited every win winter, which sounded like heaven I could never hope to see. Five-star hotel, lunch delivered poolside, and had impeccable taste in clothing. Loose, relaxed, chic, black. Thankfully, after a glass of wine, I was relaxed enough to release her hold on me, to let my childish insecurities fade into the background and allow my adult self to predominate. I was smart, damn it. I was sexy. Partway through the dinner, right after the fried oyster mushrooms and ramp aioli, and just before the salad, I looked around the table to find that many eyes were on me as I held the room with my opinions about the war on drugs, gun control, and the recent death of a musician I had revered since I was little, who challenged gender norms and changed the course of music forever. Asa looked happy. He was smiling and seemed at ease. He fit right in with the deans, but was perhaps more professional, more professorial, more rumpled. We were the bohemians amid the preppies. We didn't use the dryer. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was that I was hitting all the high notes and barely even trying. I had an internal script prepared I hadn't even touched on yet. My husband squeezed my thigh under the table and I could see from the corner of my eye how proud he was of me, how well the night was going, how beautiful I looked. He was lucky to be able to be both a present father while also propelling himself in his career, to have his work in academia but buttressed by his life close to the land, and for the establishment to recognize that. He was surrounded by smart, talented, powerful thinkers, and yet could disappear daily into his hand-built farmhouse to make homemade soup on the Bauhaus-inspired two-burner stove, tend the garden, build a stone wall, design and construct a movable outdoor pizza oven, putter in the wood shop, cross-country ski out the doorstep into the woods, and forage for wild edibles. He had it all, and a captivating wife 
What a team we were. Yes, I was winning them all over. Our discussion was the perfect combination of agreeability and combativeness. The salad came and went. I challenged conservative assertions in just the right tone, and I could see some of, I made some of the wives stop and think when discussing the merits of public versus private education. What was the better choice? Blessing the under-resourced public school with your presence and thinking that was enough to address the problems of segregation, or creating a radical, inexpensive, non-dogmatic private school to show the public sector their model wasn't working and give them an example of one that might. We spoke of hunting and the politics of ecological agriculture. And I went on for some time about nutrient density and the difference between merely organic food and that which is deeply nourishing on a micronutrient level. There is a big difference. A carrot is not just a carrot. At my suggestion, we even played the which dessert are you personality game, my favorite. A gamble to be sure, but it went over really well. Everyone was so relaxed. I was a breath of fresh air to them, you could tell. I wasn't faking this, mind you. Yes, I'd had to read some back issues, but they had always been around. I was the one who had subscribed to them in the first place. A lot of this was, in fact, my area of interest. And while I might not have had success in the world of the written word, I wasn't a pudding, though in the dessert game, of course, I was. This was an important exercise for me, knowing that I still had a brain. I still had something to give. I began to feel that I, too, had been offered the promotion. Ace's boss, the president, chocolate person, very picky, laughed with me about something elbowing me in the arm as if we'd known each other since the good old days. And the wife of the chair of the medieval studies department invited me to a private meditation group at her guest house on Sunday mornings. She was a classic pie person, and we found out all about her top-secret recipe for the flakiest crust, something pie people always do, try to convert you. I had another glass of wine. The conversation kept flowing. I could have stayed all night. Everyone was focused on me amazed at how much I knew, considering I wasn't a professional woman, how I was the only stay-at-home mom at the table who didn't hire someone to clean her house, who gardened, who raised sheep, who dabbled in freelance work, who was an artist, who knew that painting is not just drawing with paint, but the placement of color next to color, who had time to read long-form journalism while taking care of two kids and making dinner every night, sewing patches on pants instead of buying new pairs. I could see a glimmer of envy in the other wives' faces when I discussed the projects and nature hikes I organized for my kids, the forts we'd built, that they used real knives to cut real vegetables. Yes, eyes were on me, and my audience was speechless, it seemed, as I digressed and divulged exactly how to make sauerkraut. It's all about process, but it's actually quite simple. After a while, I discovered that, yes, while all eyes were on me, the interest and admiration in the other wives' eyes didn't seem right exactly. Could it be that it was closer to horror? What had I said? Oh shit, had I said something wrong? Had I joked about homeschoolers in a pejorative way? Not knowing that someone's cousins were unschooling their kids on a nearby farm, I hadn't brought up vaccinations or astrology. Oh God, had I? And then 
The head of admissions, who was sitting directly across from me, stifled a laugh. And as he covered his mouth, his wife, cake person, sugar fiend, slapped him on the shoulder. I took a breath and reached for my water glass to buy some time to slow down and regroup. But my hands, I found, were occupied. Distracted by my own pontificating, I had been for new ho- who knows how long, but clearly long enough, cutting the president's filet mignon. And when I looked down at his plate, I could see that I had done a very good job indeed. The pieces were spaced evenly apart and in neatly arranged cubes, just large enough to spear with a fork, but not too big to choke on. I thought about this now in my car. What a fool I was to have expected the feeling of true belonging to be granted to me just because I wanted it badly. These were intellectuals who belonged in that world. They had paid their dues. They were part of the inner circle. There was very little room left. Their wives had been going to those dinners for years, eating the same fried mushrooms again and again as the cycle of new tenured stock repeated itself. At the dinner, I had been convinced the women were not serious, but now I realized that this was likely an unfair assessment. Some were probably doctors on call and couldn't even come to the dinner. And weren't some of the women I'd assumed were wives actually professors themselves? It was embarrassing me now how predictable I was, how small-minded. I remembered how I wanted the president to picture me naked while he explained how his poodle, his beloved pet, would give him a full-body hug when he walked into the house. I noticed the sticker on the upper left corner of my windshield. My oil change was long overdue. I thought I had it all figured out, didn't I? Well, look at me now. I keep looping around the same feeling, fear in general, about being an adult. The weight of motherhood is a backpack full of stones, like soil, like a bomb. It's the kind of feeling that grips me like I'm in a foggy valley, early in the morning, surrounded by thick white air, unable to see even my hand in front of my face. And I don't realize that a hundred feet up, the sun is out. I have no way of knowing. Cherish it, a woman told me at the market, smiling at the kids. I wanted to punch her in the fucking face. I go over the details again and again of the things I've done wrong. And when I'm hovering over them like a drone, replaying the moments where I tripped up, where I failed, I start to feel better. Because I'm important. It's me, after all, who keeps the trains running on time. It's me who makes dinner, who is in charge of no one drowning in the bath, who washes up, scrubs dried egg off the edges of the table, scoops dead flies from the corners of the windowsill with the sponge. Sometimes, though, I wonder if my children really love me. I think from a place that feels rational, that they just need me. Then I think that maybe it isn't need at all, but an, but an addiction. That if they ran out of their supply of me, they'd have symptoms of withdrawal, but then the need would vanish. Or the need would come back, but it would be satiated by something or someone else. Yes, it's just addiction. They don't even know me. Their knowledge of me is simply what they can get from me. That is my character, a surface to reflect my children's desires, to indicate what trick they need to pull out of their hats to relieve the itch that only I can scratch. I remember as a small child 
seeing my mother yell at my two older sisters and chase them around the kitchen with the silverware container from the dishwasher. Eventually, she discovered that for years, she'd been living with a tumor pressing down on her right eye, and so we accepted that there were legitimate underpinnings to her rage. She kept smoking anyway and would sneak down to the basement to do it. She would crack a window and press her lips up to the sash. When I was 13, she got the mask removed and her anger disappeared. But there was more loss. A whole lifetime of the tumor's rage had shaped me. What would I do with a mother who wasn't vindictive? Who didn't tell me things like, now I know why you don't have any friends. Or, of course he would stop calling you if you talked to him the way you talked to me. I didn't know what to do with this new mother. The one who was open, who was warm, who was game for anything. So, despite her remission, I hated her anyway. I figured the tumor had been her fault all along. She'd made it, hadn't she? Why did she get absolution simply because they cut it out? I was the one with my childhood riding piggyback. But now that I'm a mother, I think absolution is more than fair. My engine light went off, and I was filled with a sense of relief. I was in Westchester, New York. It was 5 a.m., and my adrenaline was wearing off. I stopped at a 24-hour Dunkin' Donuts, drank a cup of coffee, and ate a chocolate donut, things I never do. In an hour, Asa would be giving the kids breakfast. He would drive them to school. Back in the car, I listened to the news. I put the window down. There was a rush of cold. The darkness had been consuming, but it was nearing light. I became frightened. I worried about my children. I had the urge again to call and make sure they were okay. Life felt suddenly very short, and I felt far away. Why had I been driving blindly to New York like some madwoman? What was I doing? What was I looking for? But, of course, I knew. <laughs>